What does it take to make a living from your art? This is a topic about which so many of us are interested in learning. So today, Susan and I are going to be taking a detour from our usual format to look a little bit more closely at the business side of art quilting. Specifically, we're going to talk about pricing our work, selling it, and promoting it. We've both had experience in our own practice with these topics, and we wanted to explore it a little bit further and share our insights with you. The topic came up in part because of a suggestion from a listener, and I just wanted to make sure before we get started that you all know that we have an email address where you can email Susan and I to share your thoughts and maybe give us some ideas for some podcast topics. So our email address is qapodcast at goldenpeakmedia.com. Welcome to the Quilting Arts Podcast, where we take a deep dive into the world of contemporary art quilting. I'm Susan Brubaker Knapp, and I'm here with my co-host, Vivica Hansen-Denegri. Hey, Vivica. Hi, Susan. It's so good to see you on my screen again. Yes. Good to talk to you. It's been a month since we chatted. It seems like a long time. Yes, these days a month is a very long time. <laughs> Especially when the daylight is waning and, you know, suddenly our days seem shorter and shorter and shorter. Yeah, yeah. And I think as we come out of COVID a little bit more, there's more stuff happening. We get busier and it seems like time goes by even faster, which is crazy. It is, especially November, December. I always find that those months creep up on me because... I don't know about you, but I look back at my calendar and I start evaluating where I've been and what I've done. And I think, oh no, I've got all these goals that I still have to meet. Yes. Yeah. And I've been, there've been a couple big things that have happened that I am um, moving really fast to try to handle and take care of and get ready for. So they're exciting things, but they're, um, it's definitely added a little bit of stress and busyness to my life. And I bet they sort of uh, reflect on our topic of today, don't they? It's about the business side of being an artist. You know, so many of us who are in this field, I don't think we're given the credit for what we actually have to juggle. Because when you are an artist professionally and you make your living from being an artist, there are you don't just create all the time. You have to really think about how do you promote your work? How do you show your work? How do you get the word out about your work? And it really makes you um, wear so many different hats that I think it's a good idea that we're talking about this. Yeah. And especially since it's really hard for a lot of artists because sometimes the people who are fabulous artists um, are not necessarily the best business people, or it doesn't come easily to them. You have to learn it. And um, sometimes that is a lot of work, especially when you're trying to learn and do all those things and still make your art. Right. Well, there, you know, the good thing is, is that we have some really good examples of people who do it well. And to share what they do and share some of those tips with other people. And yeah, so I'm gonna I'll put together a little list of resources at the bottom of um, our conversation meeting. When you go to our show notes page at quiltingdaily.com, I'll have a list there of some really good artist resources, both from um, things that we've published in the past in Quilting Arts Magazine, and also from things that I found online, because there are some artists who really 
are wonderful with sharing. And those people aren't necessarily only art quilters, but I'll have, I'll have a good compilation. How's that? That sounds great. I'll look forward to reading those. Yeah. So tell me what's going in your life right now, Susan, that is, is um, on the business side of art. Well, the biggest thing that's coming up around the corner is I'm getting ready to participate in my county's Artist Guild studio tour. So we open up, open up my studio and there are going to be more than a hundred artists at 80 different studios participating. And so I've got to be thinking about how I'm going to set up getting hanging systems on all of my work and getting them labeled, in some cases, finishing them up and facing them, but also how to display them, how to price them, how to take payment for them, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's a lot, a lot to think about. So that's right. that's the first thing. <laughs> so tell me, is this an open studio like a weekend where people get a map and they can go to all 80 of those studios? Yes, it's two weekends, actually. It's Friday, it's, I'm sorry, Saturday and Sunday of the first two weekends in November. And it's in our county. And so it focuses in on three little towns that are close together. And this is a very arty area, highly concentrated with artists. So I think it's going to be fabulous. My my biggest disappointment is that I can't go on it <laughs> because <laughs> I'm going to be, I had hoped to go on it last year and then do it this year, but I'm just kind of jumping in. And, but that means I miss going to see all of these artists, but so I used to do this. I used to have an open studios that we did with the, uh, it was called the Shoreline Arts Trail in Connecticut. Oh. And it was really, really fun, but I never opened up my own studio because my studio has always been in my home. And I was a little worried about having strangers walk through my home and they would truly have to walk through my home mm. to get to my studio area because they'd walk through my kitchen and living room, et cetera. And I didn't want strangers in my house. So I actually picked it all up, not all of it, of course, because that would have been like a moving truck, but I picked it up and I moved it to an art center and I set up a hanging system and I brought in supplies mm. and I brought my machine so I could uh, demonstrate for anyone who was interested. But um yeah, I decided to to actually not open my studio during open studios. Yeah, and I um, I'm lucky that we have a house where my studio is kind of separate and has a separate entrance, even though it's in the house. So I'm mm. just going to put a little sign on the stairs that says "Private Space, Do Not Enter," and then people can just be in my studio downstairs. That'll be great. Do you have plenty of parking? No, parking is going to be an issue because we have an extraordinarily steep driveway. And at the top there, if people park it all up, you can't turn around at the top. So, um, but we do have street parking. We have like uh, extra um, space and my neighbor is going to let me use hers. So we should, we should be okay. I think yeah. we'll see. Some people are not going to want to hike up the steep driveway, but yeah. Right. <laughs> so, so tell me, so you're getting ready. So that means that you have, we talked in our last pod, podcast when we had Carolyn Ducey on from the International Quilt Museum, we talked a little bit about how you were cataloging your work and yes. you had talked a little bit, I think, about pricing. So big topic here. How do you decide how to price your work? 
Yeah, this is a tricky one for me. And I've struggled with this for years and I've talked to different people and I've come to think that there are a couple of different schools of thought on this and that they're not necessarily one more sensical or valuable than another. And I think a, a lot of fiber artists, art quilters, seem to price their pieces per square inch. And so they look at what other similar people are pricing their work at, and they figure out a price per square inch that seems to go along with that. I know that other people look at how much time it takes to make, and then they give themselves an hourly wage. And I looked this up and it says that the U.S. Department of Labor lists the what they call mean hourly wage for a fine artist at more than $30 an hour. So if you think about like even some of my very small pieces might take me five or six hours. So I would need to to pay myself back plus materials. If you add that in too, you would need to price it, you know, based on that. And that can be a lot higher than maybe what your market will bear. What your market will bear is different than, you know, if, if I were selling it in Beverly Hills, for example. Right, right. And so what's also difficult about that is that you're not taking into account the like rental of your studio space. So I'm calling it rental, mm. but you know, that's a proportion of the value of your home. You're not taking into account the price of your sewing machine, um, the storage of all your fabric, the need to have probably 200 spools of thread in order mm. to have the right color, you know, for instance, for your beautiful Ram piece that you just made, you know, that it doesn't take into account all of those other things. Those are things that I hadn't really even considered too. Yeah. Those overhead type things. Right. Yeah. And the other thing is I think a lot of artists don't think about the time that they take before they even make the piece with coming up with the concept. Like I visualize things in my head and I spend a lot of time letting it gestate. And then mm -hmm. I spend a lot of time sketching something roughly out and coming up with my line drawing that I then use when I'm painting. So there's all that prep work too. So it's not just when I sit down and start painting or sit down and start stitching. There's hours before that that go into it as well. Or the education that took you to get there or the amount of the thousands of hours it has taken you to become the artist that you are today and to build your reputation Yeah, and all but, of those things. But you know, in the end, if somebody walks into my studio and looks at my work, they really don't care about that. They don't care about all that stuff. That's right. They, they are thinking I have $50 to spend or I have $5,000 to spend. So you can't just, you know what I mean? Like if you're, you have to look at what people are probably going to want to pay for things. And then you kind of have to, as an artist, decide whether you're willing to sell it for that, whether it right. makes sense to sell it for that or not. And a lot of that depends on how hungry you are as an artist. And how much you want to sell things. So here's, yes. here's the other the other thing. So when you do an open studio like this, part of it is like speed dating. So <laughs> those people who are coming to your studio probably got the map 
and they circled five artists who are close to one another. One of them might be in ceramics, one of them might be printmaker, and then you're on there, and et cetera. So they've got an afternoon to hit five studios. And so they want to hit all five studios. And so they'll come in, they'll walk around, they might take your card, but then they'll know who it is that they want to go back and visit and come back to later. Hmm. And so that could have a really big impact on someone. Right, right. So they might not buy right away, in other words, is what I'm saying. You might be grooming your customers and training them to see, you know, they'll they'll come around. The person might not even talk to you while they're in there. They'll come around, they'll take a look and decide, I like this person's style. And they have no idea that you have another whole room full of quilts that you were unable to put up on the wall. Yeah, big, bigger quilts. And also sometimes people's budgets change. I mean, what I could afford for art 30 years ago is not what I can afford now. So sometimes people will say, I can only afford to buy, you know, this little teeny tiny thing from you or a pack of note cards with the work on it. But when I can afford to buy something, I'll come back. And I have had people do that. That was one thing I also wanted to say about this. It's so important if we're trying to groom a customer, and you can groom a customer over a certain amount of time, to have different price points. And yeah. as you said, you know, having note cards, great way to, to start grooming a customer. Having artwork that is framed, even a print that's framed of what of your most you know, popular design, something like that is a great way to groom a customer because they might be able to be, you know, start that entry point into purchasing from you that way. Right, right. Yeah, I think it's good to create things at those different price points. I also just recently had kind of a a revelation <laughs> about my prices because I had put them on my website with each piece of fiber art always said underneath whether it was for sale and how much. And a couple people on on social media said, oh, I just love this. Do you sell your work? And I was like, mm-hmm. what? what are you not getting? I have a website and it has the prices. And then I realized that they might not be going to the individual pictures on my website. Right. So they might be going to my page that says shop that has my Uh. books and my DVDs and other things like that. So I went onto that page and I put some language on there that says, are you interested in purchasing original art? If so, you can see all of my pieces and the prices on my fiber art page. But it made me realize that I need to repeat things or I need to think in different ways about how people are accessing information on my website and on social media. And I also have started on social media. When I post a piece, I'll say, this piece is for sale. Contact me. So Susan, I wonder if you changed the wording on your drop-down menu from fiber art to quilts for sale. But they're not all for sale because I use that page on my website almost as like a catalog of all my work. So maybe I need a gallery page. Yeah, maybe I need to rethink my whole website design. Or maybe you just need to add in another category, quilts for sale. Right, right. So a lot of this is, I think, too, I need to reach out and talk to other artists. What are you doing? What has worked for you? And I need to look at a lot more people's websites and think about what they're doing 
that I could steal from them, steal an idea from them, do it that way. So I, I would really like to talk to some other artists about, you know, their thoughts about selling. So here's the thing. If any artists are listening and they would like to <laughs> give some advice to Susan and to the rest of our readers and listeners, we do have an option for that. You can email us at qapodcast at goldenpeakmedia.com. And we'll definitely be able to answer you back. I can forward any of this information to Susan, and we can even put together a whole blog post about the information that we're learning from our listeners. Yeah, that would be great because I yeah. do think there are people who do things really successful. It's worked for them. That, that would be awesome. So I'm also curious how you are hanging your quilts because I know that some people will say, oh, it's, a, it's an art quilt. Obviously, this isn't meant for a bed. Now, if I buy it, how do I make sure I can hang it on my wall? Yeah, and I think there are still lots of people out there that don't, either they've not thought about quilts, art quilts as art. They only think about bed quilts. I'm trying to do a little bit of everything. My small pieces, I am just putting a little sawtooth picture hanger on the back. I'm, when I say small, I'm talking about like nine or ten, 10 inches. And they're so lightweight, they hang perfectly square because I have interfacing in my pieces. So they're not floppy and they do beautifully like that. I'm also putting wooden slats in small sleeves at the top of some of my pieces. And that works great for more of my medium-sized pieces. And they usually have two small sleeves that are real tight that just fit the wooden slats with a hole in the middle, a drilled hole. And so you put one nail in the wall and you can hang it up like that. Bigger pieces, I tend to use a big one solid sleeve and either slats at the top and the bottom so that it'll hang. The weight will pull it down a little bit at the bottom. Mm -hmm. And sometimes people like, if people are used to buying quilts and hanging them, some people just like that four inch sleeve at the top and they put a drapery rod or something like that at the very top. I am also doing some pieces in shadow boxes and uh, frames. So I'm trying to look a little bit of everything and I'm viewing this first studio tour as a bit of an experiment to see what people like and why. So it's so funny. I think the first open studio that I did, it was probably 11 years ago. Wow. I can't even believe it's that long. But the first day I probably had 14 or 15 pieces that were framed and I, I work pretty small. I was, I was making things that the actual piece may have been five by seven and I framed it out to be the next size up frame, basically. So there was a mat around it. I had about a dozen, let's say, pieces. And within the first day, I sold nine. Wow. And, and so I was so worried. I went home and I made five more that night. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm just so lucky I actually had five frames available. But it it made me realize I needed more of an inventory than I was ready to sell. I, mm -hmm. I, and it also showed me what people were willing to buy and the price point that they were willing to purchase at. So the pieces were like $125 or something. And my larger pieces that were in the multiple hundreds or, you know, great big pieces that really weren't for sale that I put ridiculous numbers on, those did not sell, but it was those smaller pieces that sold. And so it was it was interesting to tell me what the customer wanted and also to see how far their imagination went. 
Right. And then yeah, the other thing you have to think about is, yeah, maybe people are in the $100 to $200 range when they go to an open studio event. But if they go to a gallery, they'll spend more. So that's the other thing is I'm starting to explore the possibility of working with a gallery and how, what, what kind of prices will it bear there? And then you run into the issue of most galleries take 30, 40, sometimes more percent. You really, and you really can't price your work differently on your website than you do in, when you sell it in a gallery, because that's not fair to the gallery. You're paying the gallery for their work, for their expertise, for their promotion of you as an artist, for their contacts. So if you've got a piece that's a thousand dollars on your website, you've got to sell it to the gallery at the gallery for a thousand dollars. And then 300 of that or whatever is there, their money. And you get maybe 700. And the actual opposite of that, you should not discount your work because it's not in a gallery. Yes. And I think that is a major thing. If someone comes to your website or comes to you through a gallery or something like that, you are absolutely doing yourself and everybody else a disfavor if you discount your work. You have to keep it at the same level. I, I know a lot of artists too who just really underprice their work. And I think that's that's bad for all of us, but it also kind of shows... I think, you know, there are a lot of artists, especially women, who don't value their work highly enough. And there's a lot of psychology going on there. You know, if you value yourself, then you value your talent, your work, your skills, your creativity. So if you believe your work has value, you can help other people see that it has value. Now, that's not to say that your market might not bear the prices of what it's worth. If you're in an area where there aren't a lot of people with a lot of money, they might not be able to afford your art. So it's a bit of a conundrum. So I always thought, I heard someone say this, I have no idea who it was, but I've always thought I don't want to be the biggest collector of my own work. (laughs) I wanted to make it affordable enough and accessible enough that other people could enjoy it and that I didn't end up with a storage unit full of bird quilts, which is, you know, (laughs) it could have (laughs) happened. It really could have happened. And at this point, I only have two pieces Mm -hmm. of my own work on my walls. So it's a mission accomplished, I guess. But now my kids are saying, oh, you know, I'd really like something like that. Yeah. You can still make, you can make it, you can make more. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. But, you know, for a long time, I was not making work to sell it. That's part of my problem too, is that I made my living from speaking and teaching. And so I had to hold on to a lot of my work because I took it with me when I traveled to teach to show people, okay, this is thread sketching to accomplish texture on a piece. And I have hundreds of pieces that are stacked and rolled right behind me as we speak. Hundreds. Yeah. Hundreds. Yeah. I I think I've made more than 200 pieces and I have most of them. So I, not that I haven't, I have sold some, but if you are not thinking about selling as you're making the work, and then all of a sudden I'm shifting my business model because I haven't taught in the past 18 months because of COVID. And now as I'm getting older and I'm having some health issues, I'm thinking, Maybe I don't want to travel and teach quite as much. Not that I'm not going to do it, but I might not do it 
you know, two, three times a month, like I was a while back. So now I do think I want to sell my work so that I can make a living from it. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's all new to me. Right. So, so this brings up another topic entirely, which is if we're talking about the business of art, there are so many different funnels that an individual artist can use to create a revenue stream. Thank you. Cause my mind was going blank. <laughs> a revenue stream. And so this is the same in any business. And, and sometimes I think what we have to do is just take a step back and say, okay, we're all business people. So we have to look at our business with a really, it's, it's almost like a harder eye with, with just a little bit more um, distance between what it is that we love and what it is that we do. And we have to set a few goals and we have to find a way to meet those goals. And now if, if you're just starting out getting into the business side of art quilting, you have to think about a, a realistic revenue number that you're trying to make. And then you're going to have to find all sorts of different ways in order to make that number. One of one way to make that number is to sell your work, just like you're talking about. Another way is to diversify and also sell the creativity side of it, which is teach. Right. And that has an entirely different skill set. Oh my goodness. Yes. 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 Yeah. 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 And it's very different. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's good to brainstorm. What could I do? What if I had unlimited time? And that's always my problem. What could I do? And I'm thinking, I want to make a calendar. I want to self-publish some small little booklets on techniques. I want to um, make some prints and I have to figure out where, where and how I get good quality prints made all those kinds of things. But if you can brainstorm and come up with a list of possibilities, then the wheels really start turning. Right. And now we have so many different options too. We have so many ways that we can use the internet to, to really help us meet our goals. So obviously goal setting is important. Finding different revenue streams is important and really thinking creatively about how we can do that. Now, you have been around for a long time, Susan, meaning that your name is very much out there. So you're very lucky that way. You also have a really strong website Thank and you. Uh, beautiful imagery. It's deep. And you also know how to work your own website, don't you? Like creating new pages and thinking about that. Yep. You know, I made the decision. I, I had... F- no training, but a lot more experience as a graphic designer. And I just decided that I really wanted, (laughs) I'm a control freak too. I wanted to be able to control it. I wanted to be able to do it in my pajamas. If I made a new piece to put it up on there at two o'clock in the morning. And so, yes, I use a now defunct program (laughs) that pretty soon I'm going to have to learn how to use a different program, which I'm kind of excited about because I'm, it may mean I can do some things on my website that I've wanted to do, but can't. But yeah, I, I like learning those new skills and then staying on top of them and not, and for a long time, the huge decision was that I couldn't afford to pay somebody else to make me a website the way I wanted. Mm -hmm. So I had to learn how to do it myself. I think that's called necessity is the mother of invention. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) Well, I might have to reach out for, to you if I ever need to do my own website, because (laughs) I have no idea. I totally 
totally lean on other people for things like that. Well, there are some programs out there that at least this one now that's defunct, there are ways to do it that are pretty easy and pretty cheap and the learning curve is not as steep. So I think every artist should have a some sort of a presence on the internet beyond social media. And some people just do it, you know, they do a lot of their sales through social media and then on platforms like Etsy. So it's, it is possible, but it's good to have your own little site. Well, you know, real collectors, and I don't, I probably shouldn't use the word real collectors, but I should say the more motivated collectors will truly be more open to purchasing if you have a website. Yeah. It kind of validates you. It does. It does. And, um, you know, I have to say, even when I'm doing content for Quilting Arts, when I'm looking up, you know, if someone submits something and I have to go to their website and I have to look things up. So I do a lot of research and I really have to make some decisions based on what I find on websites. Yes. Yeah. It, uh, I think you can tell a lot from someone. You can tell the level of their work and where they are in their journey along the way. And I use it a lot as well for, you know, when we're looking at guests for Quilting Arts TV or if um, if I want to just learn more about someone. I, I love looking at people's websites. Yeah. And you know who else looks at websites is um, people who are purchasing art for corporate locations. And I think that's that's another thing that another topic about purchasing and selling, actually more like selling your work, is that if you want to get your work into law firms, hospitals, shopping malls, etc., you know, not only having a good website, but having a lot of work and a depth of work and a good strong portfolio is the way to go. Yeah, that's again something I would love to learn more about and there there are fiber artists who have you know, they make a good part of their income from selling large pieces to big corporations. And I think a lot of that takes um contacts and either people you know who are the ones who are maybe looking to 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 buy, whether that's interior designers or architects or people who can recommend your work. And a lot of it's, so it's networking and making contacts and making sure that, that your work is hangable. So I know like if you want to get your work in hospitals, oftentimes they want to have protective plexiglass in front of it because cleanliness and being able to make sure that nothing gets splashed on it or whatever is important. So there's a, there's Mm -hmm. a whole different set of considerations if you're going to sell to a company. So that's sort of interesting because, you know, I actually, before I started working at Quilting Arts, I did have one big sale and that was to a local hospital that was just starting to gather the artwork for a brand new building. Mm -hmm. And how it happened was actually at an open studio event where the buyer, she worked uh, specifically with hospitals, came to almost every single open studio on our art trail, which I think was about 45 at that time. Mm -hmm. And she purchased from me and a few other people, but I had no way to hang. And I was so glad that when they were talking about the purchase that they made, they said that it didn't need to be hangable because they actually took all of the art and they took it to a corporate framer And they actually use those little plastic T-shaped ties that, you know, you you put a uh, 
a tag on a piece of clothing, you know, the price tag uh was on the clothing. So they actually attached my artwork, which was um, a pretty large quilt. It was eight feet long and four feet tall. They attached it to a canvas and, Hmm. but they did it like every four inches. They had these T plastic ties that were clear. And I thought, how is that going to look? And by the way, is totally invisible. Wow. And they did it over the entire piece and they hung that large piece behind plexiglass. Mm-hmm. So you don't always have to do the installation yourself, which is great. Yeah. Yeah. But it needs to be something that that could be done to it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. And yeah. I think that was one of the things that, you know, they were making sure when they were coming around and doing that kind of purchasing. Right. That well, there's could be home. and there's so many. I, it's funny because when I go into medical offices, I'm always like, oh, why did they? You know, it's obvious that they went to one of those big art catalog places and they just said, I want that, 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 and that, and put it all on canvas and and stretcher bars, and I'll hang it up because and, it's easy. Yeah, Susan. but I'm like, <laughs> why not support your local people? You know, why, why if you're going to, and you're probably paying a lot more and you're not getting something that's original maybe, and you could be buying local from an actual person who needs the money. (laughs) Right. Right. Not only who needs the money, but who has some tie to the location. Yes. Yes. And I have to say that is something that I really, really love. The town next door to me has actually an outdoor sculpture program where they make different installations of sculpture and they rotate them every few years. You'll see a whole new crop of sculpture Uh just grow out of the ground. And it is fabulous. It is fabulous. And there's a tie to the location because many of these sculptors are relatively local to New England. There's, you know, it's just so cool to see things local. Right, right. And you can also, I think, at some of the doctors and dentists office, I think they can use art to be fun. I mean, like I would love to do some teeth pieces for my dentist. Maybe they need to see it first though, Susan. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, you know, that, that I think is part of it. It's part of having that depth of portfolio. Right. That you right. just need to, you need to be able to show someone what you can do and make, you know, make it, something in their imagination. It's almost like when you go to an open house and you're, you know, you're looking at this house with with no furniture in it mm-hmm. and you can't imagine furniture. Right. What the so house would staging be like. helps. Yeah. Yeah. So right. in essence, it's like you're staging mm-hmm. to show what's possible. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's so many possibilities if you just start to think about everywhere you go, like what would my art look like here? Oh, and that, that makes me think too about there's some websites out there now that have like really cool rooms with cool furniture, different styles and blank walls. And you can put your art on the wall and see, and then like take an, a picture of it, save the image. Yeah. So digitally you can see how your work is going to look somewhere. And then you can show people that too, which is really fun. Mm-hmm. I'd love to learn how to do that. That must be that must be a really easy thing to do, though. There's I think probably some website out there that you yep, could. I think there are websites or apps or something like that. I'll try to dig that out and maybe we can add that to the list of resources because it's it's really just really fun to see your work and to be able to show potential customers 
what your work would look like hanging on a wall with a certain style furniture. Right, right. So it sort of feels like, you know, if you're building your business to be a fine craftsman or a fine artist and to get your work out there, there's a lot of pre-work that needs to be done. And I think you've definitely started on there. So it's basically making your goals, Mm -hmm. setting your goals. It is implementing whatever it takes in the background that nobody sees, whether it's a website, all of the pricing ideas, building up your portfolio. Nobody sees that. Actually, they'll see your portfolio, but Nobody sees all the work that goes into it, right? Truly, the blood, sweat, and tears that goes into it, just like they don't see the planning for a piece. You know, they don't see all your sketching and all of that. And then implementing it to get out, doing all of that marketing and the legwork that it takes to get your stuff seen. And I think for a lot of artists, that's not the fun stuff. But if if your goal is to get your art seen by people, it's so important to do it anyway. Right, right. And you can decide along the way the scale that you want to take your work. And if Mm -hmm. you decide that you really want to scale up to a national level, then you go for it. There's no reason you can't go for it. There's no reason you can't be successful in getting a sales history and having the kind of success that you're looking for. Yes. And there are plenty of people who who have done it. And there's a lot of learning that goes along with it. I think this is this next year is going to be a big learning curve for me because I've got a lot of questions and a lot of things going through my head. And I think I'm going to start to figure out some of the answers because I'm going to talk to a lot of people and I'm going to jump into some experiences that I haven't had before and try some new things and try to be not scared and try to be excited about it and try to be flexible if I find out things about either myself or my work that are maybe upsetting or not good. (laughs) And that's all part of it too. Mm -hmm. Well, one thing I hope you do, Susan, and I hope that our listeners do as well, is that you look beyond quilting. And I'm sure that you do. But, you know, there are so many parallels, not just with quilting, with jewelry making, with other fine crafts, with drawing, with illustration. There are so many parallels with what we do in our own studios and what other fine artists and fine craftsmen do. And we can learn so much from people. Oh, yeah. Um, Yeah. And that's why I joined my local artists guild too. I haven't, I I just moved a couple years ago and I haven't had a chance to join a quilt guild yet, but I'm looking at the art world now more than the quilt world. Mm -hmm. Well, there's so many great opportunities to do that. And I'm excited for you because you're living my dream. (laughs) Well, I hope all of our viewers or our listeners got something out of this conversation too, in starting to think about their own conundrums and their own things that they're thinking about going forward. Maybe it's uh, opened some minds and some eyes as to what the future can hold and and how to start wading into it. Right. And, you know, there are actually so many parallels between what we do on this podcast and what we do in Quilting Arts Magazine. And I did want to mention that in the past, we've had a Minding Your Business article series that's been written by several different people. We've had articles from Jamie Fingal, from um, Jane Davlia. Mm-hmm. 
And I also believe Cheryl Sloboda has written articles on the business side of art quilting for us as well. But this might be something that we want to revisit in the magazine. And I would love to hear from our listeners about what is important to them, especially with the business side of quilting. And if this is something that you would like to see us delve more deeply into, either on the podcast, through blog posts, through... I don't know. We could even do video courses on it if you're interested. So please do reach out to us at QA podcast at goldenpeakmedia.com and tell us what you're thinking. So it's a great conversation, Susan. Thanks so much for being open to talking about how you're working and how you're looking at the business side of your artwork. I'm wondering, do you have a quote for us today? I do. This is the famous Andy Warhol. He said, making money is art. And working is art. And good business is the best art. I love Andy Warhol. (laughs) (laughs) Great talking to you today, Susan. Take care. You too. Thanks. And thank you for listening to the Quilting Arts Podcast. If you like what you hear, please rate us and leave a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Your reviews help other people find us. The Quilting Arts Podcast is produced by me, Vivica Hansen-Denegri. Our co-producer and audio engineer is the famous Daisha Clay. The Quilting Arts Podcast is part of Quilting Daily and Golden Peak Media, and our executive producer of podcasts is Jared Mayer. To view our show notes with images, links, descriptions, and resources, visit quiltingdaily.com. <laughs>